Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Hayward. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today, our guest is Chris Jones. Chris Jones mentors PhD students at Walden University School of Public Policy and Administration, and that's been online since 2009. And he's a senior fellow at the Centre for Post-Normal Policy and Future Studies. He graduated from the University of Hawaii Future Studies program with both an MA and a PhD in political science. He was Secretary General of the World Futures Studies Federation from 2001 to 2005, and he taught in the master's program in the future at the University of Houston, Clear Lake, 2001 to 2004. Chris has taught political science and future studies at in the U.S. state systems of higher education in Hawaii, Oregon, Texas, and Colorado. He has served on journal editorial boards, not-for-profit NGO boards, and has published and presented extensively in the future studies field. His novel, Fire and Ice, in 2005, explored eco-terrorism, alien first contact, and the collapse of Western civilization. His subject interests include space development, cybersecurity, women's futures, Indigenous Futures, Deep and Dark Ecology, Global Weirding and the Accelerating Warming, Non-Western Futures, Global Consciousness and High Technology. Welcome to FuturePod, Chris. Thank you very much, Peter. It is a delight to be here with you. Thanks, Chris. So the first question, Chris, the story question. So what is the Chris Jones story? How did you become a member of the Futures and Foresight community? Great question. The origins of my interest in the future probably go back to childhood. My mother was really interested in science fiction. I read a lot of her double science fiction books. These were books that had pulp science fiction on one side, and you flip it over, and there's another one on the other side. (laughs) Those were very entertaining. And uh, when I was about nine, we visited the uh, Seattle World's Fair, and oh, I was wow. really influenced by World's Fairs and then discovered that my father had attended the New York World's Fair. So th- that was intriguing to me. I grew up on the West Coast of the U.S. in the San Francisco Bay Area. At that time, there were discussions about a monorail system. It ended up being the Bay Area rapid transit system, BART, more of a subway, but some sections still are overhead, almost monorail-like. Shortly thereafter, my parents became missionaries in Latin America, and we lived uh, variously in Nashville, Tennessee for language and uh, anthropology training for the parents, and then Costa Rica for language school. We spent a year in Puerto Rico, and then two and a half years in Buenos Aires, Argentina, and a year in Asuncion, Paraguay. So I grew up as a fairly insular, you know, Yankee in the burbs. (laughs) And uh, uh, having an experience, first of all, in Nashville, Tennessee, during the Jim Crow era, Wow, had an experience as one of the few, I think I was one of three, white kids in an entirely black uh, elementary school uh, before desegregation. And and that really opened my eyes to the privilege and uh, the place that white people sat in or stand, stood in, in in those days. And then we moved to Latin America at a time during great foment and uh, revolution. At one point, we allegedly crossed paths with Che Guevara in uh, northern Argentina when he was on his way to Bolivia. We were moving to Paraguay. There were soldiers uh, looking in the train to see if uh, Che Guevara was there. The experience of growing up in Latin America during the 1960s with all of the Vietnam War in the background, um, the civil 
unrest in the U.S. and race relations wow. coming to a head. Uh, it was a very formative time to experience Latin America, particularly. One of the first images that I recall was the house that we lived in in Costa Rica it was a very modest uh, three-story house, but the walls around the house were in, had glass shards embedded in the top of the wall. Uh, it was a different kind of different kind of life than I had experienced living in the suburbs. So it's amazing what people can normalize, isn't it? Exactly. So that that is so true uh, with respect to how we understand our adaptation to the pandemic and to technological change and all the forces of, of change that we're living with today. And particularly reminds me of the year in Costa Rica. We lived about 16 kilometers from the erupting Irasu volcano. And there were many days when we had to wear masks and the ash uh, came down on us. And we, we learned how to live in this dirty, gritty ceniza. The, the word in Spanish for ash is ceniza. We had ceniza in our bread. It was in the water. Yeah. It was on our vegetables. So we learned to to accept that as normal. By the same token, uh, moving further south and living in Argentina it was a, a real eye-opener. I had no clue as an American, uh, based on our public education system, how advanced, uh, quote-unquote, I guess I, I should put air quotes around advanced um, Argentina, Buenos Aires was particularly at that time. Mm. All of the influence of the Italians and the, the British phone and railroad system. It was a, a, a really modern city. And yet mm. when I went back to the States after five years of being overseas and shared with my peers, I'd lived in Argentina, they said things like, whoa, what was it like living with Indians? Mm. So it was, I think... A realization after five years overseas, the phenomenon that's described in the book, third culture kid. So we were third culture kids. What that means basically is that neither the culture that we came from or that the culture that we were in really reflected our values. We were a synthesis of these different cultures. So that really had a big impact on me as I ended my adolescence. It was uh, some years later that I uh, discovered Hawaii and having lived in Puerto Rico and really began to appreciate both volcanoes and island living and the island lifestyle. I thought, well, why, why don't I go to Hawaii? I had finished four years of military service and had government support the GI Bill to go back to school. I decided to go to Hawaii. And after a year in Hawaii, ended up in the program, the political science program at the University of Hawaii, and took a course in my senior year in political science from this iconoclastic, hey. <laughs> uh, <laughs> weird <Dater. laughs> guy with this long page boy hair called Jim Dater. Yeah. And I took his senior level course in the politics of media. And I was hooked. He had mm. a, a budding program for master students to get a, a degree in alternative futures. Part of the program involved an internship. So at the start, I was really interested in potentially being a consultant or work, working for a research organization or a think tank uh, with a futures degree. I so thoroughly enjoyed the experience of working with Jim. The internship uh, was fairly early in my career. I had a, a marvelous half of a year with Clem Beasold, who was then the director and the founder of the Institute for Alternative Futures in Washington, D.C., then completed the master's, but learned that I could also complete the PhD program having completed all of the coursework. Right. I uh, had become friends with Wendy Schultz uh, and Sohail and Ayatullah, who were classmates in my master's program. Wendy said, 
you know, Jones, you really ought to come on and do the PhD. And I was a little reluctant, <laughs> but then I had a chance. Fortunately, the political science department uh, at the university was very understanding and um, supportive of PhD students doing research as well as teaching assistantships. I had a te teaching assistantship and fell in love with being on the stage. Yeah. It turned out I really was a ham and really enjoyed the <laughs> teaching. So uh, PhD, that, was, uh, that seemed to be the place to be, the place to go. It took me quite a few years actually to finish. The PhD itself took six and a half years. But in the interim, in the middle of the process, had a chance to work with Jim, Dater, and others. We had a two-year project on telecommunications in the South Pacific. I had a chance with a colleague, Barbara Moyer, an anthropology student, to travel to six Pacific Island polities, some of them U.S. protectorates and others not, Fiji, Bougainville Island in Papua New Guinea. Tuvalu, as well as uh, Saipan and the Northern Mariana Islands, and had a really eye-opening experience, not only about telecommunications futures and the chance to work with ethnographic futures research approaches, but really learned a lot about the environment. That was the mm. unexpected takeaway, was how concerned interviewees were, not about the futures of telecommunications, but about the Brazilian rainforest, who would have thought in Tuvalu that folks would be more interested in global planetary issues than their own issues with sea level rise? It's amazing, isn't it? When you're on an island, you're on a small island, suddenly the whole fragility of the ecosystem comes home to you in a very clear way. And Tuvalu is a really interesting case study, Peter, because... Shortly after our visit in the mid-80s, Tuvalu had a chance to get a satellite spot. They ended up being major players in uh, telecommunications because they had one of the first uh, web domains, a telecommunications presence from a small Pacific island and leveraged that to great effect. And mm. it had a, an enormous impact on their uh, gross national product and so on. Even in that short period of time uh, before the end of the century, uh, Tuvalu had jumped from a basically subsistence uh, fishing economy to a telecommunications future. Wow. Obviously, the chance then to work within the futures community uh, blossomed by 1981. I was involved in the World Future Studies Federation. My first conference was presentation with a colleague in Stockholm, Sweden, and I managed to rub elbows with Aurelio Pache, who was then the head of the Club of Rome, and began to understand some of the challenges of what was then called the global problematique, mm. issues related to resource depletion, global climate change, sea level rise, species depletion, and the rest of it, was fortunate to be involved in the Federation at a time when it was uh, growing and the futures field was growing. And, and it was pretty obvious what the connection was between the futures movement and this global problematique, the notion that global leaders particularly needed to take more responsibility and take more action to deal with the global climate and uh, other changes, particularly what we'd call now peak oil, the depletion of resources. And here we are, 40 years later, yeah. getting prepared for another COP in, in another uh, UN meeting in November, maybe we're not as far along as we had hoped we would be. I'm sure as a political science uh, researcher, you must be both fascinated and also despair at how our political systems and structures have just been unable to respond to what was fairly clear in the 70s, 60s that we were going to get to. Indeed. Well, one of the th takeaways for me, Peter, is the work that we did in the Republic of the Marshall Islands in the late 80s on sea level rise. And one of their 
senators at the time, Senator De Broom, we worked with, and he eventually became a major spokesperson, I believe at one point the foreign minister, but he was the spokesperson for the Marshall Islands in uh, some of the debates in, in Paris uh, for, the, for the environmental accords and speaks very strongly for the responsibility of the developed world for the small Pacific Island nations that are mm. uh, caught in the lurch. So mm. there, there is a voice of conscience coming from small island nations, particularly right now, that we need to li- listen to. Yeah. Anyway, the story of the Federation then continues for uh, some 40 years in my life, on and off, uh, eventually serving as secretary general, serving on the executive board uh, for a, a period or two, really being committed to international futurism. As an American, uh, easily exposed to the World Future Society, a more technologically oriented American futurism and really enjoyed the strain of uh, European intellectualism and discourse in futures, a, a strong tradition represented in the Federation, as well as voices from the uh, Soviet Union. Yeah. One of the things that was so intriguing uh, as well during the Cold War period was the ability of Federation members to meet in places like Yugoslavia. We met in D- Dubrovnik, uh, now Croatia, for many years uh, for spring break, uh, an opportunity to bring people both from the East and the West and collaborate on cross-political block discourse about uh, the futures and, and planning. And really learned a lot of interesting things about how the Russians saw technology and the role of, of technology in promoting Marxist ideology and then our own efforts to use technology, the moon race. <laughs> to promote democratic ideas. Yep. Who was it who said that, I think it might have been Richard Slaughter who wrote in one of his books, that all technology has embedded social and political interests. Indeed. And that certainly was one of the strengths of the Hawaii political science program. We had an opportunity to see a lot of folks from across the world, the thought leaders, we would call them today. People like Emmanuel Wallerstein was there. And, and many folks who visited the program and, and shared perspectives from, from Europe and Asia, uh, particularly Asia Pacific. Mm. I had a chance to work with some really uh, exciting people and listen to them as, as a grad student. One of the things that happened during my master's program, however, uh, or fairly early on, working with, uh, as I said, Clem Beasold in the Institute for Alternative Futures was a project that we did for the United States Geological Survey. It was a fairly simple project. We were looking at major trends and particularly emerging issues to help inform the USGS on its decision-making. And one of my frustrations was that the mandate uh, did not allow us to look at cross-border issues. For example, at that time, there were nickel smelters in southern Canada, the pollution from which was traveling into the upper Midwest of the U.S., and acid rain issues. And not just to blame Canada, there was pollution from the U.S. that crossed into the Canadian territory because they were cross-border issues. That was not something that we were allowed to look at. I found that not only short-sighted, but really frustrating as a researcher. And it was that research that led me to the work of Jim Lovelock, who was developing his Gaia hypothesis with Lynn Margulis and others, and ended up spending a lot of my energy on my dissertation exploring the implications of the Gaia theory and how it interacted with other traditional understandings and epistemologies about Mother Earth and Gaia and all that stuff. So that was really fascinating, a very provocative period of time to be exposed to the developments in radical feminism, indigenous politics, anti-colonialism. Dependencia was a big thing at that point in time in Latin America. A lot of really critical theory 
approaches to our understanding of the world. For all its strengths and weaknesses, there are many criticisms that can be leveled at Lovelock, for example, his position on nuclear power. But I found the theory itself very compelling, particularly one of the important assumptions of future studies, which is deep time. Lovelock wasn't the first to talk about that, but his portrayal of the geological processes, the amount of time and energy that it takes carbon dioxide to be processed throughput through the earth geological systems and other chemical components that humans are disrupting Mm. uh, was a real eye-opener, particularly about the amount of time it might take for us to recover from the experiment that we're doing on the Earth's atmosphere, and particularly the the growing realization that no matter what we do, even if we get to zero carbon by 2050, uh, we're going to be dealing with the consequences of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere for millennia, Mm. if not mere centuries. So being in the Futures program was a huge eye-opener. It was also a reality check. I think being a budding academic, it was pretty clear that most of my peers were not going to be working in academia. We were cranking out way too many PhDs at that point in time than we could ever possibly employ in the higher education system. So I did take some umbrage about what my possibilities might be, but eventually did get a a full-time position teaching at a small teaching college in Eastern Oregon University. But the beauty of that small school and position was that they let me continue to do futures research and writing and got increasingly involved in the futures field to make a fairly long story short, after 10 years in Oregon, ended up teaching in the University of Houston Futures Program, Studies of the Future Program, while it was at the Clear Lake campus, had an opportunity to work with Wendy Schultz, who was there for a year while I came on board to replace Oliver Markley, who was retiring. So I had a chance to get to know Peter Bishop, one of the movers and shakers in the field. Of course, uh, Oliver Markley had a good chance to get to know him pretty well as well as continue to work with Wendy. I need to point out that Wendy was not only a sister in spirit, a sister from another mother, but has continued to be a close colleague. And we continued to work together in the Center for Post-Normal Policy and Future Studies. Wendy and I were involved in a number of projects outside of the political science program itself. We did work on climate change, sea level rise, and and waste management in the Northern Mariana Islands. Well, we were able to work together on a number of projects related to coastal zone management and sea level rise in Hawaii and in the Marshall Islands and in Samoa. So I was really blessed not only to work with her, uh, to work with Sohail and Ayatula. Uh, Sohail and I uh, were very close in graduate school. He was my first instructor on meditation. A few people have found this a little hard to believe, but he taught us how to power dress. (laughs) I'm not surprised. (laughs) So Hale had an eye for swanky, polished uh, black leather shoes and and how to dress for power. Excellent. So the decade I spent in graduate school at the University of Hawaii basically made me who I am. Uh, Jim Dater ended up being, as I said, mentor for both a master's that I did on alternative futures of space development, uh, but also for the PhD on uh, the Gaia theory and critical theory. Right. Thanks, Chris. We might move on to question two, the one where I encourage the guests to talk about a framework or a philosophy or an approach that they think is central to what they do. 
So what do you want to talk to the listeners about? I want to talk to them about post-normal time, post-normal times analysis and how it may or may not uh, relate to futures and uh, foresight work. The story begins again back in Hawaii and the lessons that I took away from my graduate experience had a lot to do with the growing sense of pluralism and diversity and how the planet and how the globe is opening up to cultures, to identity, to peoples and language, even though we're losing languages, to a great extent, the, the world is more cacophonous. It's the Bible Tower. Exactly. So it was one of Jim Dater's favorite saying, not saying, but uh, uh, advices that we need to consider uh, how conflictual that this will end up being, that it's it's not going to be a happy place necessarily, that uh, we can be, we can embrace the diversity, but also need to understand that that conflict between values and identity will be problematic going forward. So when I stumbled into the work that Zia and John Sweeney had done on post-normal times, post-normal times revisited, it seemed like a good description uh, for me of what is happening in the present. So I have this long tradition of cleavage to the four futures, to alternative futures, and, and I certainly have not left that behind. I think it comes in at the end of this story. What is it that characterizes the society that we live in and that we have to negotiate today? And even before the pandemic, it was pretty clear that the alliterative approach describes there's four S's and three C's. There's the underlying dynamics of change. They defined it as the speed, scope, scale, and simultaneity of, the, of change itself across a number of domains. It's easy enough to look at technology and see how the speed of change has occurred and, and the scope of it, how, according to Moore's law, the number of transistors on a computer chip continues to double every couple of years. We're, although we're getting close to some physical barriers, even quantum now is being touted as one way to break through that to physical barrier. I don't think it's any mystery to look at how the pandemic spread, that our technological systems, our international transport systems, the rail systems in China uh, enabled that spread of the pandemic within uh, days or weeks of its first appearance. And so we, we need to confront the fact that the technological and, and even the lagging systems of culture and politics are changing at this breakneck speed. Alvin Toffler sort of hinted at some of this, I think, when he talked about future shock. Mm. But what we're seeing now is like future shock um, redoubled or tripled. Uh, given the amount of change across, again, all the different sectors of, of human activity. And then the ripple effects on the environment and uh, resulting climate change that may come about from all of that. So according to the theory of post-normal times analysis, the four S's result in chaos, complexity, and contradictions. These are the manifestations within those systems of these dynamics of underlying accelerating change. And again, using the pandemic as an example, it was pretty clear to see, uh, particularly in the early phases, uh, the enormous amount of chaos and uncertainty, and of course, the uh, complexity of the systems, You know, the WHO, the Chinese system, the American government, and the complexity of managing the pandemic in the U.S. was staggering, in and it still continues to be problematic, the tension between local, state, regional, and national leadership. So post-normal analysis is arguably about the present, and we've received some feedback from futurists that, you know, well, post-normal times analysis, you know, what, what is it? It's just about the present. It's really not to do with the future. My argument is that 
yes, everything in the present is important with respect to the future. The conditions that we are given today will have a lot to do with the kinds of futures that we potentially may be able to achieve, to imagine, to create, to implement. So the whole project of the post-normal analysis is to, first of all, try to get people to understand the dynamics of these accelerating changes and to try to prepare policymakers, particularly Mm. for understanding the implications. I work with uh, current and, and future public administration and public policy officials. And one of the exercises that we often use is a simple futures technique. It may not even belong to futures. It's just reversing assumptions, reversing the obvious, asking folks to take the axioms, the basic assumptions that they've all held for granted, and to expose those and to turn them around. I've been doing this particular approach now for three or four years. And what I've found, particularly towards the end of the Trump era, is that everybody gets it now. (laughs) It was a little harder to suspend the disbelief about this for some folks, but it's for some reason a whole lot easier now to turn things on their head because I think of a lot of things, a pandemic in the U.S. particularly exposed some of our deep-seated racial animosity and inequities. And so that came to the fore during the protests over Mr. Floyd. Yeah, or same thing in Australia with their black deaths in custody, same thing. I mean, it's happened all around the world. It's not an event that's purely local in America. When, When people were locked down, some of the deep-seated issues sitting in the societies came to the fore. And I think that's right, that it's easy to to look at, you know, individual nations and say, well, they did this right or they did this wrong, but we're all collectively responsible, mm. at least in some measure, for the colonial experience or at least for the perpetuation of uh, colonial attitudes and economics yeah. that continue to take advantage of uh, less developed parts of the world by extracting resources. Can I ask you a question? I've, I've had Zia and I've had John and I've had Geordie uh, and I've had Wendy on the, uh, on the podcast series, but I ask this question of you. It's just, I absolutely, you know, I think the, the post-normal times analysis work that you're doing is essential. But the question I want to ask is, what do you believe is the human capacity to cope with post-normal times? Yes, we need to think more clearly about change and complexity and the pace, and we need to think of, and we need to challenge our assumptions. I go, yes, we do all that. But I'm asking the human question of what does the human have to be to be able to successfully and I suppose you'd say, I don't want to turn it into a technical exercise. I'm I'm very much coming from the human perspective. How do we be the best humans we can be in post-normal times? Well, that well, that's a great question because it suggests a bifurcation again between the present and the future, as though maybe there's a a normal that that somewhere out there we will find an accommodation for all of this, which I think leads to I, I believe it's your third or fourth question for the yeah. the podcast series, which is a new appreciation that I'm developing for the Dark Mountain Project and the work of Timothy Morton on the idea that, well, he he, ha- he has a number of things going on. There's a hyper object, but also the work that he did lately, uh, uh, more recently on dark ecology, uh, looking at how, uh, I think they call it a prim- uh, anarcho primitivism, a a call to return to hunter-gathering lifestyles. So I got to tell you, I'm compelled to look at that as more than just a rebirth of some kind of neo-Luddite attitude. I I think it's more than simply a rejection of uh, industrialization, but a realization that 
what we've been doing simply cannot continue to work. To, to kind of circle back to the beginning of your question, thinking about Jeremy Rifkin's work, the, the social critic Rifkin wrote some time ago, maybe 15, even 20 years ago, about time wars, about how this issue of the acceleration of time where you know, we the industrial revolution gave us the minute and the second, and now electronics has given us, you know, femoseconds and nanoseconds, and we're parsing the the band of time into the smallest little pieces of time that we can divide it into, so that we can fill it with all the things that we need to yeah, do. Yeah. And the message to me is that the way to cope to deal with post-normal times is to slow down. Mm. There's a difference, I think, between managing post-normal times from a managerial standpoint, from the standpoint of being in an organization, perhaps, and the lesson that we take away as individuals. I think it's pretty darn clear, if you look at how people have behaved during the lockdown and the pandemic, that a lot of people really appreciated the chance to not be flying so much, yep. to not be in their cars so much, to slow down, to smell the roses. Mm. You've done it a couple of times in this. You talked about the deep time of Lovelock, the fact that we're on a planet with systems that run over millennia. Exactly. If we jump to the external world, the Rivkin view is that we can continue to make that world faster and smaller and more reactive and responsive. And like a ham sandwich, you've got this organic thing in the middle that's us. <laughs> and trying to both live in that fast-paced, chaotic world yeah. in a slowly changing physical environment. And then we throw into the, these notions of identity, culture, gender that are, I think, as I look around, they're starting to fray at the edges, which I think is an understatement. That's really a good point about how I think this actually leads on to, to, leads to my next point, yeah. too, about uh, the, the limits to complexity. We're at a time that is both liberating because we're able to look at epistemologies and ontologies that maybe we never considered before. Yeah. You know, globalization has had a, an interesting impact in terms of how it's opening our eyes. I noticed that there's a lot, uh, considerable debate, I wouldn't say a lot, but considerable debate, at least around the edges during the pandemic, about the role of capitalism. And mm. is it a a system that is adequate to deal with massive global pandemic, public health issues. Mm. Uh, certainly the way it's structured in the U.S., it isn't. And a similar debate with democracy versus autocracy Indeed. for managing it as well. That's the other one that's clearly being debated as well. So I have a little weird thought I will, I will throw in here about uh, back to Rifkin and thinking about quantum. We're working on quantum uh, computing and quantum uh, mechanics in a way that may be worrisome. Yeah. We take for granted that the transhumanist agenda, the idea of the singularity of uh, transcending human foibles and frailties by re-engineering our bodies with mechanics or biology, but there's been an interesting discussion about the potential impacts of messing with things like quantum state. I had a chance a couple of years back to read the Dark Forest trilogy of the famous Chinese science fiction writer Liu, who posits that the reason why aliens haven't contacted us is because, and why SETI, the search for us extraterrestrial intelligence through radio astronomy hasn't worked, is no one wants to be found. Because if you are discovered, you'll get stomped and crushed that the universe is not a friendly place. There have been some recent interviews with uh, the astronomer uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson and, hmm. and others who've talked about the dangers of, of contacting yeah. uh, extraterrestrials. Frankly, I've been a big fan of uh, SETI. I spent 
a number of years attending the contact conference at NASA Ames in California with uh, science fiction writers and anthropologists and had great fun looking at uh, potential human contact with extraterrestrials. But we may be entering into areas technically that may alert more advanced civilizations that were here. And we may not want to do that. Might not be a good idea. Third question, Chris, the one where I ask you, having thought as a post-normal epistemology, what are the emerging futures that particularly get your attention? So I had a chance to interact with uh, Richard Slaughter. We hadn't been in touch uh, much uh, over the past decade or so, and he produced uh, an article uh, recently, Farewell Alternative Futures. <laughs> yes. And of course, as a graduate of the Alternative Futures program, I had to react to that. And the last time I wrote about it, I said, well, he's half right. And now I'm wondering if he's even more than, than half right. And that what's happened is that our inability to deal with climate and peak oil and what I call the limits to complexity have created a, a situation where we really are eclipsing positive images of the future and uh, positive futures projects. And I'm a member of the uh, World Future Studies Federation, as well as the APF, uh, the Association of Professional Futurists. And I'm struck with the number of budding futurists that are doing corporate work, that are doing consulting work, and are talking about positive futures and creating positive futures, envisioning positive futures. And I Sadly, I'm concerned that uh, we've run out of time for those. That, uh, that It's not that they don't play a role or that they couldn't play a role if as a civilization or if, if as a society as we were able to or totally engaged with those concepts. But we're not. And I think we're, I wouldn't say we're doomed, but... I am particularly drawn to the work of the Dark Mountain Collective in the UK that have been producing a journal over the last almost a decade now, eight years or so. Their uh, position is not that, you know, we should uh, embrace the apocalypse and party till the end, but they are saying that uh, we've gone so far past the turning point that we are so deep in catastrophe, that we have so set the collapse into motion that we need to be more realistic, we need to be more cognizant of the futures that we have limited, as well as the futures that we still uh, potentially have available to us. And so I used to be called a gentle Cassandra because I tended to warn about the uh, problems of the environment, and I'm deeply concerned about the, the direction that things are going. But I, I do think that we are likely to be looking more at survival futures, at uh, decline uh, futures, as uh, Richard Slaughter describes them. And um, and yet I, I am hopeful, uh, again, to, quote, to lean on Jim Dater, he has had a similar turn in the last few years and talked about new beginnings, uh, the suggestion that there is a collapsed future ahead of us and that we need to find a way to either evolve out of that or uh, find a way to, to grow out of the ashes, you know, like Prometheus, I suppose, the phoenix. I think you covered this in the sense of where well, you take the axioms and you flip them. I mean, Richard and Richard isn't the only futurist who, who wanted to talk about collapse futures, but even futurists don't want to talk about collapse. <laughs> Richard and Josh did a special issue of futures where they talked about descent futures. Right. Sorry, not as in descent, but to descend, to lower, to kind of you know, moderate. Even that, as you know, was still resisted because, as you said, there's a whole lot of people in our community whose stock and trade and livelihood is based on a continuation of the notion that we can grow, enlarge, extend 
the reach of the organizations who pay us. Right. So that is the reason I'm drawn to the movement towards degrowth. There are a number of uh, political economy movements uh, across the planet now that are looking for ways to to redirect our growth from material to spiritual, from material to cultural growth, primarily because it just comes back to the some of the base assumptions of industrial capitalism about the exploitation of resources, the privatization of the commons. I think there are some legitimate concerns about collective approaches as a response and the importance of creativity and entrepreneurial approaches to see our ways out of this. And yet, ultimately, we're, we're in this as a collective. Mm. And one of the things that Data has argued for some time is that the governance, particularly in the U.S., has not served us well to anticipate or to respond to these threats or to the, even the driving forces to, to help us, uh, as he say, says, uh, surf the tsunamis of change. Let, let me just tie this up, though, and that has to do with uh, what, what is the vision. And the vision, I think, if you look at uh, Timothy Morton's work in dark ecology, is some kind of return to a, uh, a hunting, gathering kind of uh, system uh, that certainly honors the indigenous peoples that have a long history and experience and and epistemologies for uh, our coping uh, with that kind of reality. The, the hard part, of course, is how do you sustain uh, billions of people on a planet that are is likely not to support more than a, a billion or so, if we're lucky. So we're at the last question, Chris. We've traveled from the boy who was the third culture, living in many worlds, seeing his world as an outsider and seeing other worlds as a, as a visitor, to, the, to future studies, to post-normal, to deep ecology. So what are the options going forward, Chris, do you think? Wow. I I am going to need half a minute here to collect my thoughts. My response is not one of uh, horror or uh, despair about uh, the, the coming catastrophes and civilizational a collapse because on one hand compelled to see civilization through the lens of uh, anthropologist Joseph Tainter who has argued that the collapse of complex societies and civilizations comes from an inability to find the marginal efficiencies and social complexity. That is to say, when societies get so complex and so complicated, not just complex, but complicated and and contradictory, then there there tends to be a, a negative feedback loop process. So be that as it may, I am compelled to embrace the celebration of Dark Mountain Project and others for the life on the planet. Uh, I studied Gaia as a theory long enough to understand that even if humans aren't here any longer, that something else will take our place or some other species will come to the fore, that Earth and and the planet have a a way of surviving uh, long term. It's not species dependent. So 
my basic uh, idea is that we need to celebrate life as it exists and do our best to mourn uh, what's lost and to to do our best to sustain, if it's even possible, uh, the, those species that remain. Uh, although she's very controversial, I'm really drawn to the work of Donna Haraway, mm. uh, particularly her her last book on the uh, Cthulhu scene and uh, thinking about the other species on the planet as our kin. She had a really interesting story about a series of clones that were bound to one particular species. I believe it was of a butterfly. And so I think that's the kind of playfulness, that's the kind of uh, experience that we will need to embrace as we move forward into the future. Despite my own reluctance to embrace genetic engineering, that may be her response, may be one logical way of of looking at how how we tie human genetics to the genetics of other species. Mm. That was just kind of one crazy idea Mm. that was thrown out there about how we manage the future. But uh, one of the things that comes from radical feminism and conceptions of Mother Earth is that Mother Earth has had this attitude with humans that, you know, go ahead, try it, see what happens. (laughs) Uh, Well, we've tried a bunch of things. They haven't worked out so well. So maybe we can save our species, at least a good chunk of it, by uh, coming to terms with what those uh, natural limits are. Uh, Slaughter and others uh, have talked about those, the natural boundaries of nature that we've exceeded, such as uh, pumping more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere then uh, is justified. So, yeah, we're going to play and we'll see what happens. But uh, what we need to realize is that we're not in control, uh, that uh, we need to to give up our uh, fantasies about uh, geoengineering, uh, macro engineering, and uh, just let nature take its course. Yeah, we're not we're not the gods. We're not the gods. Look, Chris, it's been um, it's been great fun to catch up and uh, and talk. Uh, thank you very much for taking some time out. Aloha! Thank you very much for the chance to participate and to be part of the community. Thanks, Chris. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.